0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, December 7th. I'm Marco Werman. Syria's President Assad denies ordering a crackdown on protesters. He also tells ABC that he doesn't control the armed forces.
1: This observer finds that absurd. Syria is a centralized, tyrannical, authoritarian system. Um, To say that he's not in control of his own forces is ludicrous.
0: And later, Israel struggled to find its footing amid the region's turmoil. The Arab Spring is not about us. It's about them.
2: So we really do need to sit on the sidelines a little bit and see how it develops.
3: PRI's The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic. Leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com. And by IBM, working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at IBM.com engines.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is raising eyebrows around the globe today, and not just because he gave a rare interview to ABC's Barbara Walters. In that interview, Assad denies ever ordering Syria's armed forces to kill protesters. For nine months now, those protesters have been demanding the end of the Assad regime. The United Nations estimates that more than 4,000 people have been killed in the ongoing crackdown by Syrian security forces. But in the comments being broadcast today by ABC, Assad questions the UN's credibility and in any case denies his own responsibility for the violence. Andrew Tabler is a fellow at the Washington Institute. He lived in the Middle East for 14 years and has met both the Syrian leader and his wife. Andrew Tabler, thanks for joining us to uh, deconstruct Assad's interview. Thank you. Um, Let's listen to some of his comments. First of all, here he's responding to Barbara Walters after she asked him if he feels guilty for the deaths of Syrians.
2: I, I did my best to protect the people so you cannot feel guilty when you do your best. You feel sorry for the life that has been lost, but you don't feel guilty when you don't kill people.
0: You've met Bashar al-Assad. Is he choosing his words carefully by implying that he didn't kill people directly, so he's not responsible?
1: Well, I mean, I think this clearly shows that President Assad's in complete denial. Um, He knows that he is the complete commander of Syria, along with his family. Uh, Every state in the world knows that. What he's doing, though, is trying to say that somehow it's being controlled by some other forces besides his own security um, bodies. And that's just not in keeping with the reports that we have via video from Syria, as well as that of a lot of brave journalists who have been going over the border into Syria and doing reporting um, on the front lines of the uh, of the protests, which now have engulfed the entire country.
0: OK, Andrew, in this next excerpt, Bashar al-Assad completely distances himself from any control over Syria security forces.
2: They are not my forces. They are military forces. Belong to the government.
4: Okay, but you're I don't government.
2: own them. I'm president. Okay. I don't own the country, so they're not. No, my No, but forces. you have
4: to give the order. No, no, no. Not by your command.
2: No, no, no. We don't have nobody. No one's command. There was no command to kill
0: or to be brutal. They're not his forces. Uh, Andrew Tabler is Bashar al-Assad saying he has no control over Syrian troops and security personnel.
1: He's trying to do that. Um, Syria is a centralized, tyrannical, authoritarian system. Um, to say that he's not in control of his own forces, security forces, or the military is ludicrous.
0: All right, in this next bit of the interview, uh, Walters challenges Assad's answer, but Assad remains defiant.
2: We don't kill our people. Nobody kill no government in the world. Kill its people unless it's led by crazy person. For me as president, I became president because of the public support. Andrew, what do you make of that last <laughs> comment?
1: This is a, what's called the basis of reality argument that's always put forward by the Assad regime, that somehow we don't know what's going on inside the country. This used to work when Syria was closed, to the outside world, but under Bashar al-Assad, it's opened up. And, of course, now with the with the other reports that are coming out on Syria via video and so on, it clearly shows that there is another reality going on.
0: Uh, Andrew, you know Assad. Why did he even give this interview? I mean, it seems like it in some ways it makes him more vulnerable
1: because they are getting more desperate. A few days ago, the head of the Syrian National Council, the essentially government forming in exile, gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal, and it was picked up everywhere. And the Assad regime now is desperate to reframe the conflict But the problem is, the way they are reframing the argument is that nothing is going on in Syria and that it's just a bunch of armed gangs. This is nine months into the conflict. Andrew Tabler, how does the
0: Assad in this interview with Barbara Walters square with the Assad you knew when you lived there?
1: This pattern has been growing for years. Hafez al-Assad, his father, was a brutal dictator and killed 30,000 people in Hama in 1982. So like father, like son. But in another way, Hafez al-Assad was a more straightforward person. Bashar's erratic behavior over the last 11 years is a consistent pattern. Hmm. Bashar al-Assad says one thing, he does another, and it's perplexed everyone. And now everyone, like in a reality TV show, is entering the room and they're starting to discuss what's actually going to work with this guy. And this is where we get into the conversations about some sort of intervention in Syria, although the parameters of that until now are not clear.
0: We've been speaking with Andrew Tabler. He's a fellow at the Washington Institute and the author of In the Lion's Den. Andrew, thanks a lot for your input. Thank you. The Arab League, led by Saudi Arabia, has taken a tough line with Syria. It's demanding an end to the Syrian government's repression. That may seem a bit hypocritical, given how willing many Arab League member governments have been to crack down on dissent in their own countries. But the pressure placed on Syria may be part of a bigger showdown in the region, the confrontation between Gulf Arab states and Iran. Some say Syria, a longtime ally of Iran, is just the latest battleground in what's being called a hidden Cold War. John Alterman is director and senior fellow of the Middle East program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. John, when people talk of Iran's enemies, most people think of Israel and the U.S. What is at the root of this hostility between Iran and Saudi Arabia?
5: For centuries, there have been tensions across what the Iranians call the Persian Gulf, what the Gulf Arabs call the Arabian Gulf. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are different. The Iranians are not Arabs. They are Persians. And The Arabs have been threatened. When I was talking with a a senior Gulf Royal a few years ago about Sunni-Shia tensions in Iraq, he said, you don't understand. The Iranians have only been Shia for 500 years. They've been Persians for millennia.
0: How serious is the tension at this moment in time, and how is it uh, kind of expressing itself?
5: Well, I think it is serious. It's partly because of a sense that Iran is on the verge of having a nuclear weapon, that Iran with a nuclear weapon would behave more recklessly and Iran would be harder to deter. I think there's also a sense that the United States isn't the same kind of force in the Gulf, and that makes the Gulf states feel more exposed. And one of the battlegrounds for this battle for influence is Syria, which is Iran's principal Arab ally and a proxy of Iran in, uh, in the Levant.
0: So the big picture is pretty complex. Connect one more dot for us. How does this uh, all play into the other equation in the region, the Israeli threat to attack Iran's nuclear facilities? Is there a, a tacit alliance emerging right now between the Saudis and the Israelis?
5: I don't think there is. I think the Israelis have their own set of, of calculuses. One of the Israeli concerns is with the fall of Bashar al-Assad, arguably excellent news for the Israelis. If the next government of Syria is pro-Turkish, the Israelis have an increasing number of problems with Turkey. They feel it's hostile. They feel it's a a Muslim Brotherhood-led government. The Israelis are likely to feel even more encircled by Islamic radicals as they see it.
0: Yeah, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yes. Do you think the tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia could come to blows between the two countries?
5: It's unlikely the two sides would have a military confrontation, in part because they're set up to fight differently. The Iranians have really tried not to fight army on army, but to fight asymmetrically, that is using guerrillas. They don't want to go head to head. They precisely don't want to go head to head with an army like Saudi Arabia's. So I think what you're likely to see is a war of attrition. You're likely to see each side trying to undermine each other using proxies. But I don't think you're about to see the Saudi and Iranian armies on the battlefield fighting each other. Do you think this
0: essentially comes down to a Sunni-Shia split then?
5: I don't think it does come down to a Sunni-Shia split. To a degree, it's uh, an Arab-Persian split. Mm -hmm. But it is also about two countries that think that they are the rightful leaders of the Gulf. And the U.S. was able to split this difference in the 1970s when it had a twin pillars policy in the Gulf, where its key allies were both Saudi Arabia and Iran. That's harder to do. The Iranians have historically felt like they've been shortchanged by the world, and they're fighting for the respect they believe they deserve. The Saudis believe for any number of reasons, including but not limited to their wealth and the holy mosques in Mecca and Medina— that they are the leaders not just of the Middle East, but of the entire Islamic world. And who are the Iranians to push them around? And and ultimately, you have two civilizations or two countries that feel they represent civilizations, each of which feels that it should be the predominant power in the Gulf. And they can't even agree what that Gulf should be called.
0: John Alterman is the director of the Middle East program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. As we heard, Israel has its own concerns with Iran and with the Arab Spring, and it's been getting advice from the U.S. on how to deal with the uncertainty. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta said recently that Israel should do more to mend fences with some of its neighbors. But as the world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem, that advice is not universally
2: appreciated by Israelis. The American Defense Secretary was careful not to blame Israel alone for its increasing diplomatic isolation. But it's a problem, Panetta explained, and he urged the Israelis to take bold action to fix it. When he was asked what Israel should do about the long-stalled peace process with the Palestinians, Panetta said, quote, get to the damn table. Panetta repeated the mantra about an unshakable U.S. commitment to Israel's security, but he also seemed to be asking Israel for more diplomatic effort, not just with the Palestinians, but with other regional players, starting with Turkey and Egypt. Israel's relations with both countries have suffered big setbacks this year. I think Israelis are scratching their heads in terms of uh, Panetta's uh, no doubt well-intentioned, but hopelessly naive and irrelevant uh, admonishment. Yossi Klein-Halevi is a foreign policy expert at the Shalom Hartman Center in Jerusalem. He says the Obama administration is failing to grasp what the so-called Arab Spring means for Israel. There is nothing more frightening for Israelis when we look around the region and see the rise of Islamist regimes, which may or may not be all kinds of things. They may be pro-democratic or anti-democratic. But one thing they all are is hostile not just to Israel's policies, but Israel's existence. These are confusing times in the Middle East, and the Obama administration appears to be in a state of confusion itself, says Jonathan Reinhold of Bar Ilan University. In the case of Turkey, for example, Reinhold says the big reasons why its relationship with Israel has changed so much is mostly due to Turkey's internal dynamics.
4: And the same really goes for Egypt. I mean, at the end of the day, This is a a very deep change in Egyptian politics
6: and and there's not really much that Israel can do on the strategic level.
2: One former Israeli diplomat I spoke with has a very different view. He welcomed the speech by Panetta because he said Israel's current government is guilty of sitting on its hands at a critical time. The government should not be taking a wait-and-see approach, he said. Things are not likely to get any easier as time goes on. Paul Hershen, spokesman for the Israeli Foreign Ministry, says he's heard this criticism before. He says there is an ongoing debate inside Israeli policy circles over whether to reach out or to pull back. At the same time, Hershen says this might not be the time for Israel to be taking big risks. What's going on in the Arab world right now, what we are calling the Arab Spring, is not about us. It's about them. And uh, it's, it's, it's the Arab population's taking responsibility for themselves. Uh, So the truth is that we really do need to sit on the sidelines a little bit and see how it develops. Maybe this will turn out to be a time for Israel to engage its neighbors diplomatically, but if that does happen, it's likely to take place carefully and quietly. For The World, I'm
3: Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Still ahead, random hacks of kindness on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic working across borders, disciplines and industries to deliver medical technology solutions that help improve healthcare around the world. Learn more at medtronic.com/innovation. Medtronic, innovating for life. And by IBM working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at ibm.com/engines. I'm Marco
0: Werman, and this is The World. Climate negotiators in South Africa say they're close to an agreement on a new. Green Climate Fund. It would help poor countries deal with the effects of climate change. Rich countries like the U.S. have pledged in recent years to contribute tens of billions of dollars to such a fund, but the details were left for a later date. Well, the current United Nations Climate Summit in Durban, South Africa, is that later date. Delegates say they're optimistic about reaching a deal this week to get the fund up and running. One of the countries that almost certainly will need the fund's help is the Maldives. The low-lying island nation in the Indian Ocean is especially vulnerable to rising sea levels, and its government has made urgent appeals to the rest of the world to take the threat of climate change far more seriously. But as Lily Jamali reports, even many Maldivians don't seem all that concerned about their future.
7: Eleven-year-old Rizmi Adam sits with his parents as the last patches of bright pink and orange sky fade over the tiny Maldivian island of Gurandu, The family lives feet from the sea, but Rizmi is less than impressed by his view of the water. Rizmi says he's scared that his house and everything he has will be washed away. The waves have entered his home many times before. His father Khalid sits on top of concrete blocks the family stacked as protection from the sea. Khalid says their island has always had erosion problems, but in recent years the tides have grown more extreme.
0: It's
3: getting worse every year. The monsoon season gets stronger each year. The environmental scientists are talking about the sea levels rising, and we're seeing the same thing.
7: Sea level rise will be one of the most significant impacts of climate change, and the Maldives is among the most vulnerable countries. Its 1,200 islands average only about five feet above sea level. The country's president, Mohammed Nasheed, has been trying to bring the Maldives' plight to international attention. Two years ago, just before the big climate summit in Copenhagen, Nasheed staged a world-class publicity stunt by holding a meeting of his cabinet six feet underwater. We
8: are actually trying to send our message, let the world know what is happening and what might, what will happen to the Maldives if climate
7: change is not checked. Nasheed said at the time that at best, the Maldives had only 50 to 70 years before rising seas threatened the country's existence. Five years ago, a UN climate report forecast a possible two feet of sea level rise by the year 2100. Today, many scientists are predicting an even more dramatic rise— But even in a country where citizens could end up among the world's first big wave of climate refugees, many don't share their president's concern. Fisherman Mohamed Firushan lives on Guradu, not far from Khalid Adam.
2: I don't believe sea level is rising. I even heard very recently of a scientist visiting here, and he said that in the last 40 years, there has been no change to the sea level.
7: Firushan says he read that on an Islamic website. Islam is the official religion here in the Maldives, and some Muslims here say that if their country is inundated, it's God's will. But even some who grasp the science aren't all that concerned. So, I mean,
0: when President Nasheed did that cabinet meeting underwater, do you think that we as Maldives, did we get the message?
7: In a class at the Maldives National University in the capital, Male, lecturer Ghanem Mohamed asks his students if they think Maldivians are as worried as they should be.
9: And Do we really believe that we are in danger?
5: Personally, I don't feel that we are in danger, actually, because really, if we are thinking, we
3: will find another alternatives. For example, reclaiming the islands to 2 meters or 4 meters. If it is not 4 meters, we will reclaim to 6 meters. Maldivians are very creative. They will find another alternative.
7: This student's comments reflect the culture of a small island nation where people long ago got used to trying to save and even expand their land. 75 miles from Malé, buildings are growing on a vast, barren stretch of new land on the island of Tuladu. Last year, residents here saw their once congested island grow by more than 40 acres through reclamation, dredging up sediment from the ocean. The new land may still be vulnerable to sea level rise this century, but many here view the danger of inundation as a thing of the past. Zubair Ibrahim owns a workshop where he makes the lacquered crafts this island is famous for. He's lived all his 46 years here, and he remembers when islanders constantly wondered when Mother Nature would strike next.
0: Back then, during high tide, the waves would just come into the island. People's homes would get flooded. There was nothing much we could do.
7: We would maybe put a sandbag or something. Reclamation has changed that, at least for the time being. Now we've forgotten those days. Now it does not flood. In a sign of his hopefulness about the future here, Ibrahim is starting a museum of Tuladu Crafts. THIS KIND OF RECLAMATION WORK, RAISING SOME ISLANDS AND EVEN CREATING WHOLE NEW ONES, IS HAPPENING THROUGHOUT THE MALDIVES, AND IT'S LED TO A SENSE AMONG MANY THAT MAN HAS CONQUERED NATURE. BUT RECLAMATION IS VERY EXPENSIVE, AND IT MAY WELL NOT BE ENOUGH TO STAY AHEAD OF THE ADVANCING TIDES. AND SOME MALDIVIANS SAY THE GAP BETWEEN THE REALITY OF THE THREAT AND PERCEPTIONS ISN'T JUST A MATTER OF CULTURE OR RELIGION. THEY SAY IT'S ALSO POLITICAL. Hussein Yaman is an opposition party member and part of Guradu's island council. He says President Nasheed hasn't focused enough on the issue here at home.
5: He didn't talk about it with the people. He's talking about it in the international conferences. So in this island, uh, many of these people, they don't know what, what he's talking about even, really.
7: President Nasheed says he agrees that his government needs to do more to make people aware of what's happening. But Environment Minister Mohammed Aslam says even here, it can be hard to get people concerned about something as seemingly far off as climate change.
3: Climate change is a slow process if you put into a human time scale. It's a bit like a smoker who continues to smoke, knowing that ultimately he will face
5: the consequences of it.
7: Islam acknowledges that many Maldivians might not be aware of the global nature of the problem. Back on Garandu, Khalid Adam doesn't use phrases like global warming or know the exact predictions for sea level rise. He just worries about his home.
3: There is the fear that we won't be able to live here one day, but we won't just passively watch while our home gets destroyed.
7: And so he'll keep trying to protect his home for as long as he can. For the world, I'm Lily Jamali in the Maldives.
0: Funding for Lily Jamali's story was provided by the South Asian Journalists Association. You can read what people around the world are saying about the climate summit in South Africa at theworld.org. We stay in South Africa for today's GeoQuiz.
9: GeoQuiz
10: <laughs>
0: This is the late, great South African singer Miriam Makeba. She's singing a well-known song in her native language, Kosa. It's called the click song. Those clicks in Makeba's voice are a feature of Kosa. It's spoken in several parts of South Africa, including the township just outside Cape Town that we're looking for today. During apartheid, black Africans couldn't live in Cape Town. They were relegated to areas like this township. Its name in Kosa means our pride. So try to come up with the name of the South African township. We'll get the answer and meet one of South Africa's newest musical sensations later in today's global hit. News headlines are next on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, an investigation into the life and death of a Canadian hockey enforcer raises questions about just how dangerous the game
8: is today. The difference between hockey today and and, and 20 years ago is the difference between cars hitting each other at 30 miles an hour and cars hitting each other at 60 miles an hour.
3: PRI's The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic. Leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com. And by IBM, working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at IBM.com engines. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a
0: co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Enforcer, tough guy, goon. All words that describe a hockey player whose job is to protect his star teammates and intimidate opponents. Derek Bougard was a hockey enforcer. His life and death were the subjects of an in-depth series this week in the New York Times. Bougard died this past summer from a lethal mix of alcohol and painkillers. He was just shy of his 29th birthday. The New York Times series written by John Branch has sparked new life into the ongoing conversation about fighting in the NHL. Bougard grew up in Canada and came up through the junior hockey system there. So he wanted to hear what folks north of the border make of his story. Bruce Dobigan is a Canadian sports writer and commentator. Bruce, is Derek Bougard's story a common one in Canada?
8: It's all too familiar for people in particular over the last few years. But people who've known about hockey have known this kind of story for many years. I guess the big difference is now that uh, instead of seeing these guys fade off into oblivion, they're dying. And I think that's what's really focusing people on, on the problem.
0: And for those of us who don't know ice hockey that well, what is the job of the enforcer and why would it have led to a drug overdose?
8: Hockey has this kind of internal uh, culture that requires every team to have its own Tony Soprano. It's, it's almost like a mafia kind of thing, that we can't trust the police, and so we need somebody else to uh, to make sure things are squared at the end of the day. Uh, in hockey, the, the players and the management claim they don't trust the officiating, to be honest and fair. So we keep a guy around on our, on our side who will uh, uh, go in and get justice when the referees don't give us justice. That's basically what Bougard was doing. He was the hired hand. He was the Tony Soprano of his hockey teams.
0: And are, are a lot of people in Canada who don't usually read the New York Times reading it for this article, this series?
8: It's gotten a lot of attention. People have put, picked it up. I suspect for Times readers and American readers, a lot of it, this is new stuff. For, for people in Canada who, who followed the story, it's a little bit of old news in the sense that we've been through this cultural portrait in various things. We've seen enforcers, people like this who've come to no good. Uh, we've also had, we had a sexual abuse scandal within junior hockey in, in Western Canada. And many of the things that the Times piece reflects, uh, we've seen in the past that way, too. Such as what? About the internal culture of hockey, the acceptance of violence, the almost omerta quality that you've got Mm -hmm. in hockey about not not speaking out when, you know, you're put into a situation like Bougard might have been in. The sense that uh, the community in hockey is bigger than everything and keep your mouth shut in spite of the fact that your life is being broken by it.
0: When we hear details uh, in the New York Times article, for example, that Bougard's family gave him both hockey and boxing training, does that shock Canadians?
8: A lot of these guys come from smaller communities, probably guys who, uh, who are probably physical and maybe even bullies in their hometown. The encouragement of the family to, to get into, into the NHL. Uh, there's one fellow named Brant Mayers who was in the NHL for a number of years went through the rehab program five times. He was an enforcer. I remember asking him and saying, well, how did you get to be a, an enforcer? He said, my father. My father told me that the way for me to get into the NHL was to become the, to lead the Western Junior Hockey League in fights. And basically, his father drew the, road, the roadmap.
0: Now, the New York Times series also discusses the fact that Bougard's brain was studied and it was found that he was suffering from CTE. That's a chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh Bougard was, and he had already begun to develop signs of brain damage that might be expected from someone suffering from early dementia in mid-age. Do you think that the danger of brain injury is something that will resonate with parents of Canadian kids who want to be hockey players?
8: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is the big story in the last five years. This has gone from being a, a sports decision to being a kitchen table decision by families as to whether they want to put their kids into a sport where this is a, not just a possibility, but maybe even a probability if you play at a certain level of hockey, the difference between hockey today and, and, and 20 years ago is the difference between cars hitting each other at 30 miles an hour and cars hitting each other at 60 miles an hour. Mm. The game is faster. Even the inadvertent stuff now is dangerous. So it has really become a subject for families to decide, is this what we want our kids to get into, both boys and girls?
0: Bruce Dobiggin is a sports commentator and author of of Ice and Men and The Stick. Bruce, thanks a lot. Thank you. We've put a link to the New York Times three-part series about Derek Bugard, Punched Out the Life and Death of a Hockey Enforcer. It's at theworld.org. Computer hacking and humanitarian work would strike most people as unrelated activities. Well, not so for the people behind a movement called Random Hacks of Kindness. Its goal is to develop open technology that can be harnessed for humanitarian good during a crisis. This past weekend, the group held software-making marathons all around the globe, Reporter Monica Campbell has more.
9: Meet Michael Carpellis, 23, and a passionate techie here in San Francisco.
7: Fifth grade is when I definitely was interested in programming. Started doing geeky summer programs.
9: Last weekend, Carpellis took time off from his dot-com startup to link up with 1,000 other techies logged on in cities from Berlin to Bangalore for a 48-hour software-making sprint Random Hacks of Kindness was started by a team from Google, Microsoft, NASA, and the World Bank. It's a growing movement of like-minded techies, self-proclaimed hackers for good, who collaborate to design crisis management programs useful during disasters, disease outbreaks, tsunamis, things like that. But
7: there's something really special about a hackathon, because a hackathon takes it to the next level. It's
3: an opportunity to take action.
2: The tricky part is actually more in how
3: you represent the language for the algorithm rather than the algorithm itself. That's it's important. not like you're doing a pre processing stage where you're like trying to apply
7: Levenstein's algorithm or, or at a distance and then. That and sounds
9: then, like geek speak, but Carpalis is talking with Robert Monroe, a computational linguist so, um, at Stanford, about something pretty simple and useful. It's Monroe's project to build a new emergency response system for the Samoan Islands that delivers emergency text and phone messages to rescue teams on the ground fast. The alerts could also be plotted on a Google map to pinpoint a trapped person's whereabouts. Rescuers used similar technology after the Haiti and Japan earthquakes. Now Monroe is further tuning the software, hacking it out, and testing it during a cyclone simulation
2: in Samoa. We simulated the lead-up the, to the cyclone yesterday. Uh, it hit overnight. We had uh, a 12-hour blackout in communications. And now we're in the process of mapping and translating all the different uh, emergency reports.
7: I, first of all, I love this. It's a great way for people to get connected. Um, and after something like this, like a disaster, it's pretty imperative.
9: As Monroe and Carpellis chat, Dave Lang, who actually runs Samoa's emergency response network, is on Skype following the software test, too. He says the hackers are offering him expertise and test runs his small agency's budget could never afford.
2: There is software that does the kind of things that we need it to do. To buy it is about $200,000 for us.
9: And the overall payoff could be huge.
2: The end result for us is about saving lives, so the... Any way uh, that we can do that more efficiently is going to be good.
9: Other projects were equally ambitious. In Portland, developers created an application to allow medical workers to track disease outbreaks in real time. In Bangalore, hackers built a job database for unskilled workers. In Montreal, developers created an app that can scan a microscopic photo of bacteria taken from water to test for drinking safety. Monroe, the programmer, says, sure, this helps others. But he gets something out of it, too.
2: So the majority of people who study computational linguistics go on to work, you know, the search engine, for example. And they'll spend their career making a search engine 5% more accurate. Um, Whereas, you know, in one weekend, I can apply the same technology and have it create a more robust emergency response system for an entire nation.
9: This
7: is something interesting I was working on a few weeks ago. And that's not
9: a bad two days' work. For the world, I'm Monica Campbell in San Francisco.
0: South Sudan became the world's newest nation last July. Its independence from Sudan was supposed to bring an end to violence in the region. Instead, deadly clashes continue along the border between the two nations, and artillery bombardments are still driving thousands from their homes. Human rights activists have looked for a way to monitor from afar what's happening on the ground. Aided by the star power of actor George Clooney, they've come up with the Satellite Sentinel Project. It purchases satellite imagery of Sudan and South Sudan and analyzes it to help find those who are waging war. Harvard's Charlie Clements is one of the project's leaders. Charlie, uh, show us how this works. I'm pulling up uh, one image uh, on my computer. What are we seeing in this frame?
6: That's an image of a village that the day before you would have seen 300 huts in that village. And approximately 290 of them were burned to the ground in this image. And a U.N. official called in a report that he had seen uh, about 900 refugees at 1 o'clock in the morning pass his observation post. And we knew something had happened that made those, those refugees move. So we directed the satellites north of Abiy. That's where his observation post was the next morning. Uh, and this is the image that we caught.
0: And when you say you directed the satellites, how are you manipulating the the path of the satellite?
6: Well, the the satellite has cameras that are directional in it. Uh, Its orbit is a low-earth orbit, so that's fixed, but it can direct its eyes at narrow kind of strips of land. And so uh, they picked up that this village had been burned. We notified the United Nations right away. They had a, a compound in Abyeh, and they were held in that compound by Sudanese armed forces for the next three days. They were not allowed to exit their compound to go and investigate this village uh, and what happened to its inhabitants. This uh, then alerted them that, that there was really m- more military action on the way, and within about two weeks of that, the Sudanese armies completely overtook Abyeh and displaced uh, all the residents from it, killing some 80 to 100 people and displacing thirty to 40,000 overnight.
0: That sounds pretty dire. How did this, uh, I mean, without this picture, how much worse would it have been?
6: We think that they may have modified their tactics knowing that we had promised that we would document any incidents of mass atrocities. So it appears that they forced these villagers to evacuate and then burn the village, whereas in Darfur, they were really burning the villages while people were still in them.
0: And when you say the, the village was burned, was it burned by uh, strafing? Was it burned uh, by military on the ground? Who, well, who actually, did if, if
6: you look at uh, this image uh, even more magnified, you'll see that the individual structures are burned, but the grass in between them uh, is often not burned. Right. So our assumption was that these uh, homes were individually torched.
0: Charlie, what sort of interesting data do you get from these images?
6: Well, we have been able to anticipate almost every major use of of force uh, in the last six months that we see the buildup. In order to attack someplace, you have to gather assets. And we're able to see that uh, and uh, hopefully predict it and avoid casualties that way. And also we hope that international community may raise a voice and and actually deter uh, some of these military actions.
0: Sudan is a huge country. It's about a quarter the size of the U.S. Can you cover it all?
6: No. And in fact, uh, that's a very important question, Marco. We can only see a small slice. We have to direct the satellites where to look. It's like looking at, uh, at a large map uh, with a very narrow aperture uh, uh, device, and we have to tell it where to look.
0: You guys are almost like kind of private sector uh, spies.
6: Well, the government of Sudan has accused us of that. I think that George uh, Clooney refers to us as the anti-genocide paparazzi, Uh, (laughs) but we are attempting to use this technology to prevent uh, incidents of mass violence. We have, however, warned the government of Sudan and the forces in the south, the SPLA and SPLM, that uh, should mass atrocities occur, we will try to document them and use that evidence to hold the perpetrators accountable.
0: Has your project managed to marshal more evidence that could be used in the International Criminal Court, the ICC, against Sudan's leader and his defense minister, Abdel Rahim Hussein? Uh,
6: We were just informed last Friday on uh, December 2nd that, in fact, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court had issued an arrest order uh, for uh, General Hussein, the defense minister, and based much of his evidence on recent Satellite Sentinel project reports of the kind that we just looked at. Uh, Time magazine uh, obtained that confidential arrest order and confirmed what I was just uh, saying on Saturday, December 3rd. So we are pleased that that some of these um, incidents have been marshaled as evidence in moving toward an arrest and an indictment. Charlie
0: Clements, you've got a pretty long trajectory when it comes to following wars. You were a former U.S. Air Force combat veteran who served in Vietnam. You spent some years in El Salvador during the war there in the 80s. What is the big picture in terms of how satellite monitoring is changing the face of war today in 2011?
6: Well, it's just uh, begun, Marco, but I think this is the first time that the instruments of national security have been in the hands of NGOs who were using these images to protect human security. Before this project began, I think that probably the only nations that had this kind of intelligence capability were G8 nations. Neither the Sudanese Armed Forces nor the SPLA forces, which had been arranged against them, nor the UN itself, which was trying to keep them separate, had the kind of intelligence capacity that we did
0: And how does the U.S. government, the U.S. military, the U.S. intelligence community feel about NGOs like you doing a job that, you know, in some ways they should be doing?
6: I think they're probably not happy about it, but it's resulted in some very strange incidents. So we released a report uh, at 8 in the morning one morning that a a village of 300 uh, huts had been burned. And uh, the State Department was tweeting about it 15 minutes later. Now, their tweet goes to hundreds of thousands of people. They had those same images, but theirs were classified. Mm. So there is some strange things going on here that uh, our release of this information publicly allows the State Department to do things they couldn't do publicly before. It's bringing a transparency to these uh, issues that hasn't existed before, and it's very much unfolding as, uh, as we speak.
0: Charlie Clements heads the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's in charge of human rights documentation for the Satellite Sentinel Project. Charlie, thanks very much for speaking with us.
6: Thank you, Marco. My pleasure.
0: You can see some of the imagery from the Satellite Sentinel Project. And check out a video of Charlie Clements answering my question on George Clooney's involvement with the project. That's all at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Indian government did an about-face today. It suspended its plan to allow retail giants like Walmart to operate in India. The plan, announced just two weeks ago, would have allowed foreign companies to own up to 51 percent of local retailers. But fierce opposition has now forced the government to put it on hold. Sagarika Ghosh is a senior editor with CNN, IBN Television in Delhi. So this is a stunning reversal, Sagarika. Why is India rejecting what many see as a huge
4: business opportunity? big setback for the government. Uh, the government certainly has egg on its face on this one. Well, basically, the government had no choice but to suspend this particular policy because of the enormous opposition that was mounted by the left parties, the communist parties, as well as the right wing BJP parties. It put an enormous amount of pressure on the government. The left in India, as you know, hates anything to do with America and they literally see red. The BJP, the right-wing party, also opposed it for an incomprehensible reason because they are actually in favor of reform. They're actually in favor of foreign direct investment. But on this particular issue, they bow down to their vote bank, which is the Indian trader, the Indian corner shop or the mom-and-pop shop. Which they felt would be endangered. And that is a big constituency for them, which is why the government literally had no choice. Parliament was stalled for seven days and has had to back down now.
0: And how big an investment were we talking about?
4: Marco, it's a big investment. It would have meant 51 percent of foreign direct investment in Indian retail, which would have made a huge difference to Indian farmers, to Indian consumers, to making the market much more competitive. We're looking at really a sea change in the way buying and selling is done in India. A tremendous measure of economic reform, one that is necessary to open up India's markets. But sadly, the government was not able to Push it
0: through. And despite the potential of billions of dollars of investment and revenue, it looks like the mom and pop stores, the little guy who we often think is powerless, won. I mean, that's pretty astounding.
4: Absolutely, Marco, because that is a huge constituency for the BJP right-wing party as well as for the Communist Party. They actually donate to both parties. But I think the government mismanaged this, was not able to sell, retail properly. The government couldn't retail, retail properly, actually. It should have actually gone out there and convinced people why the mom-and-pop store was not in danger. And they failed to create the political constituency needed for reform.
0: How will this affect the government of Prime Minister Manmohan Singh?
4: Big loss of faith. He is a prime minister who has made economic reforms his cornerstone, and this is one big reform which has come after months, years of policy paralysis in the government. And even on this one, he has had to back down. So this is a big embarrassment, I would say, for Manmohan Singh, and the government has lost a lot of credibility.
0: Sagarika Ghosh, senior editor with CNN IBN Television in Delhi. Thanks so much for speaking with us.
4: Thank you very much.
0: For today's global hit, we head to a black township on the outskirts of Cape Town in South Africa. The township of Guguletu is the answer to our geoquiz. It's a place where kids grow up listening to hip-hop or house music. But Anders Kelto found four young men who took a different path. Walking through the streets of Guguletu on a Saturday
10: afternoon, you'll probably hear something like this. It's Mizzoli's, an outdoor barbecue restaurant that basically turns into a block party on weekends. Huge crowds of young people come here to eat, drink and dance, while stray dogs feast on scraps. But if you continue just a few blocks up the road, you might be lucky enough to hear this. The Guguletu tenors are one of South Africa's newest musical sensations. They're four young men, between the ages of 25 and 31, who grew up here in Guguletu. Most of their friends got involved with gangs and drugs, but the tenors bonded over something more unlikely. My idol, personal idol, is Luciano Pavarotti. That's Mpendulo Yawa. He taught himself how to sing when he was 14 by emulating Pavarotti. His close friend, Loisa Dlova, had similar tastes. He liked the three tenors.
0: The great three tenors is my inspiration because when I started doing like opera, I was listening to them a lot.
10: Yawa and Dlova formed a group under the guidance of their high school choir director and began singing opera classics and operatic pop. They were later joined by Molani November and Siabu Leila One day, they were performing at a local concert, when music agent Karina Brewer heard them sing, she says she was completely caught off guard.:
7: From the guys that come from Google you sort of the perception that, that you would have is that it's going to be some kwaito or, or <laughs> some hip-hop, but what came out there were the most amazing, raw, pure um, opera voices. <laughs>
10: Brewer became their agent. In the years since, they've become stars at home. Now their first CD is available internationally. But Olani November says their success hasn't come easily.
2: It was difficult
3: growing up in Nyanga, KTC.
10: He grew up in an informal settlement near Guguletu. His family lived in a metal shack with no running water or electricity. He says it was a dangerous place.
3: Because there were lots of violence, not only king Starism and drugs, but even through the government, the old government system
2: of South Africa.
10: Music was his outlet, but singing opera made it hard for him to gain respect, especially among his peers.
2: Yeah, you get teased and some will call you gay, some things like that. Yeah, Ah, you are a gay, man. You, you must be a man. You can't do this kind of music, you see.
10: He and the other tenors sang for years without making any money. Their first manager stole from them, and their families often pressured them to quit. But they stuck with it. Now, their agent, Karina Brewer says so she couldn't be happier for their success.
7: Funny thing is, when they come to our office or when you meet them, what are they doing? They're always singing. <laughs> Gotta go, guys, let's let's just talk for five minutes, please. And then they start, like, you can just see their feet start tapping and they start making harmonies. And, and that's the great thing, to just see them living their passion.
10: It's hard for the tenors to pick one highlight of their career, but they say it was probably when they performed opera songs, including O Sole Mio, for three special guests. In
0: front of Oprah Winfrey, Chris Rock, and uh, Mariah Carey, when we sang for them, we humbled them and we made them cry. We made Oprah cry.
4: <laughs> we made it <them> cry. <laughs> <laughs>
10: World, I'm Anders Kelto, Cape Town, South Africa.
0: Wonderful story. That's it for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in.
3: The World is a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict, online at USIP.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and the Carnegie Corporation. PRI Public Radio International